0: Hello, welcome to Supply Cast, the podcast from the Healthcare Supply Association. Today I have with me Heather Teeny Moore. Heather, first of all, before I sort of do the, the full welcoming bit, if you've got one of those things where I don't know whether I should be saying Professor Heather Tenny Moore, Professor Heather Tenny Moore, OBE. Uh-huh. You know, it's a bit. It feels like a minefield to get it, to get it right. Are you, how do you like to be addressed?
1: So, I, the the thing I really like is just to be called Heather. Yeah. Um, for, to be absolutely correct, I'm not entitled to use professor anymore oh, because I was oh. not made emeritus. So okay. I was a, I was a professor at Edinburgh Napier University when I was working mm-hmm. in executive capacity. But, but not anymore. So definitely the professor's gone, but I'm delighted the OBE is still there, but I don't, I don't need it mentioning all the time.
0: <laughs> okay. What, do, what did you get the OBE for?
1: For services to healthcare. Mm-hmm. So it was a just in the very early 2000s when uh, I'd been doing a lot of work nationally. So I was on the National Modernisation Board with Alan Milburn um, and the Heady Days when there was loads of money going into the NHS and we were writing the the first 10-year plan for the NHS. And it was at that time when I really realised that Yes Minister was a documentary, not a comedy (laughs) (laughs) programme.
0: It's interesting that you bring that up. I've actually been watching a load of other episodes of Yes Minister and Indeed, Yes Prime Minister on Britbox. Other streaming services are available. I've been watching them on BritBox, Box and it is, it is interesting. It's very, it's very cleverly written. it just kind of it kind of does make you think the more things change, the more they stay the same, sort of thing. Isn't yeah.
1: It? Well, it was, it was, it was very interesting times, actually, because to be fair to the then new Labour government, I think it was pretty much the first time that they'd brought in clinicians and uh, leaders from the NHS into the policy discussions Mm -hmm. whereas previously they had absolutely relied on you know professional career civil servants yeah Um, and they really wanted to hear from us and it was I mean it was a great honour but it was also a bit daunting you know me thinking gosh why am I here amongst all of funny of all these professors and all of these Mm -hmm. other people but what I could bring was kind of deep experience of running hospitals and working on the front line as a clinician Um, and that was so valuable to them in fact I can even remember a point and I won't mention which minister it was at the time where they were called into the house and they said right can we stop this conversation now I want to go in the house, I'll vote, I'll come back and then we'll carry on because I want to hear it firsthand from these people who are working at the front line. So um, it was fascinating, actually, to be part of that. Um, But I think it was, I think I got the overall OBE for all of the work I'd done around nursing leadership Mm -hmm. um, and my contribution more broadly as well.
0: So great honour. Yeah, and I was going to touch on this, that you you do have quite an extraordinarily starring career in healthcare. Mm Over 30 years, you've obviously been a CEO obviously of a trust as well. Yeah. Um, Lancashire NHS Foundation Trust, was it? Lancashire. Lancashire Care NHS Foundation Trust. Um, and you started off as a registered general nurse.
1: That's right. So you've kind
0: of dedicated your life to to healthcare and you've stuck within it one way or another. Yeah. Um, what was that? Was it just a vocational thing or
1: well it's funny actually? So originally i was going to be a doctor uh, and mm-hmm. i went to medical school oh
0: okay
1: uh, my mother my mother was a nurse my father was a physicist uh, my sister was a dentist and it was like you're good at sciences you you kind of care about people you of course if you can be a doctor you should be a doctor but actually, when I got there, I thought, oh, I'm not sure this is the, the ethos or the, the kind of orientation that I'm really looking for. So I did two years and then decided to withdraw and then went into nursing. And when I went into nursing, it was it really clicked for me. And I felt, yeah, you know, this is this is the right thing. And at every point when I think back, you know, all the sort of decision points you make in your career, at every point, all I wanted to do is kind of make a positive difference to people. And, and I think naively, when I was a staff nurse, I thought if I could just have my own ward, if I could just be the sister of a ward, then, you know, I'll be in charge of my destiny, and that'd be great. And I kind of got that. And I thought, Oh, no, I'm, I'm still not absolutely in charge. And, then I had a great opportunity to go and be um, one of the first Macmillan breast cancer nurses in the country and set up my own service, and and that was um, amazing. And I could talk to you for hours about about that. And but then I kind of thought, oh well, you know, I'm making a huge difference to these women and their families. But if I was a bit more senior, I could make more of a difference to some more people. And kind of then went into management and became a director of nursing and then chief operating officer up in Scotland and. And then got headhunted to being a chief exec and I'd resisted it for years. People kept saying to me, you know, you could be a chief exec. And it's like, Mm. why would I want to be? It's a a fantastic job being a director of nursing. You know, I can Mm. focus on the stuff that I really care about and, you know, not have to deal with some of the stuff I don't. But I was persuaded and I was at Lancashire Care for 10 years and, again, loved it. But um, eventually got to the stage where I thought, you know... I think I just need a bit more balance in my life. <laughs> you know, yeah. i was hurtling towards 60 and thinking, oh, I've been working 24-7 for 40 years. So I decided to, to stop that and do make a portfolio kind of non-executive type uh, advisory career. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the last three years. But I was okay. really clear. I wanted I wanted to use all of that NHS experience but I really didn't want to sit around another trust board table sure. in a provider.
0: And that's how you found yourself at NHS supply chain?
1: Yeah. Obviously, yeah. was on
0: the board prior to taking over his interim chair yeah. after Jim Spittles um, yeah. left. And you supply chain, well, well, how did that right. come about?
1: So they were looking for, again, you know, somebody who was a clinician and somebody with deep NHS experience to come in as, so we, you know, we don't have many non-execs, but everybody's got kind of like a specialist subject. So if you like, my specialist subject was clinical matters and, and the NHS. And I just thought it would be really interesting to use that experience in a, a different way. So it's kind of, almost, well, at the time it felt like one step removed but what's great now is that now we've gone into NHS England. It's like I'm right back in the middle of it, but not in a provider um, because I've you know I've done that for 25 years as a, a board level. So I wanted to to use that experience in a different way. Um, so yeah, I'm absolutely loving it.
0: So in your in this interim chair role at NHS Supply Chain now, you've you've. You know, you've been in a, a few months now. Mm. What are your goals? What's your vision for what you'd like, how you'd like to put your stamp on things? You said you'd like to make positive changes. What yeah. kind of positive changes would you like to make at NHS Supply Chain?
1: What I, what I really want is for us to be firmly a key partner to the NHS. Yeah. So not an organisation that sells stuff to the NHS, but, but that is... Uh, you know it's a safe we're a safety partner we're as a, you know doing our bit to support quality patient care um, and are really part of that NHS family and work in that way now I know some families fall out all the time but I'd like us to be a <laughs> functional family where yeah. you know we don't always agree but mm-hmm. we stick together we do what helps each other and and through that We we help the people that we ultimately serve because I think you know I am truly a a public servant at heart. You know I really do think about my responsibilities to the population, um, whether that's you know the population of Lancashire or the population of England or Scotland or wherever I've been. And I think there's a there's a lot that we can bring to the party um, that will help the NHS. And to be just so good at it that people just, you know, they don't want to swap us for a a different member of the family, you know.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there anything that when you sat on the board that you thought to yourself, this is something we should be doing, this is something that we're not doing enough of, or this is a particular change that we can make that can bring huge benefits to the front line? It needs to be something that we hit the floor running on with you in this interim chairman capacity and obviously Mm -hmm. Andrew as well. As yeah. a new, new chief, um, yeah. what would that be?
1: So, yeah. I think um right at the top for me, who we think we're helping, funnily enough. So, mm. one of the things that i kind of, I must admit, you know, I've banged on about all the time I've been here is what's our role in terms of supporting clinicians? You know, if we, I mean, we don't want to talk about customers anymore because that implies we're just selling, but, mm-hmm. you know, who do we think? we're here for and of course you know there's lots of middlemen there's lots of experts who are part of the the team that enable you know really good procurement but at the end of the day the vast majority of what we are providing is used by clinicians it it needs to be what they need it needs to be you know stuff that helps them do deliver care in better ways Mm -hmm. You know, looking down, we're looking down the barrel of a, you know, very significant workforce shortages, you know, staff are exhausted. And, you know, we had workforce shortages before COVID, but I do worry about our workforce in the NHS. You know, we have we know we've got massive demands, we've got backlogs, we've got people that have not come forward, you know, and there's, we've got all kinds of innovation and opportunity going on out there. You know, historically, the NHS as a whole has been incredibly slow in getting innovation to the front line. You, I mean, I've, I've done work in research and, you know, typically even a good research uh, trial, 10, 12 years before it starts to be put into practice. If we're going to really improve people's lives and improve the health of the nation together, we've got to get that moving more quickly. Um, and and in different ways. So, I mean, I am an optimist. I think you have to be an optimist if you're going to work in the NHS for 40 years, Mm -hmm. to be frank. But it does feel like there's a few big plates, if you like, that are coming together that, you know, with the creation of ICSs and, you know, whether you believe in the political ideology of competition versus cooperation, et cetera. But, you know, we've got to cooperate with each other now. Uh, I don't think anybody's got any choice. So, you know, with ICSS being created, with us coming into NHS England, with Andrew's new leadership and his vision about how we can really become world-class at what we do to support the NHS, you know, that would be... If we can... If started down that legacy... I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. I'm, I'm currently appointed until December next year, so I haven't got a lot of time to... Um, to leave a huge legacy but that's the kind of space I want us to be in.
0: You was at the HTSA conference in November mm. which, you, which mm. you played a role in um, alongside the new CEO Andrew New. You also had a, a series of one-to-one meetings that were set up with individuals yeah. and I haven't spoken to Andrew that he said that they were very worthwhile you know frank and open yeah and, and, and frank and open always <laughs> always pictures and image in your head (laughs) how how are those how are those meetings for you and and what if i can ask you first of all what are those what were those meetings like for you um how worthwhile were they for you um and also perhaps what was your overall view of the hcsa conference and the themes that were coming out of it
1: so uh, i probably had slightly fewer meetings than andrew did Mm -hmm. which you would expect um you know but the people I met, um, both in those one-to-ones and more generally, I was really encouraged by, actually. I've always valued, if you like, listening to the front line. You know, as a as a chief exec, as a director of nursing, I always tried to make sure I was well connected with, you know, what's really happening rather than what do we think is happening um, and, and being able to triangulate that. So I did get some good messages about some things that weren't working very well. But what was gratifying was when I brought some of those back um, to the organization. there were people in the organization who said yeah absolutely we recognize that we're working on it we've got a plan you know so I was able to go back to those people and say, yeah we completely agree um and and we're going to fix it. we've got to make sure we do. It's mm-hmm. no good just saying we will we absolutely have yeah. to but but the, the, there wasn't a huge dissonance between what mm-hmm. I was hearing and what what we believe is happening. Um, mm-hmm. so that that was really good.
0: Can you enlighten quickly on what, what those were? Was, was there a well, recurring themes that so were coming up?
1: One one very simple thing was how effective were the regional customer boards and whether the right conversations were being had there, and whether the communication, both kind of up the chain and back down again, was effective or not. And I don't think they are working as effectively as they could be. Um, But we we need to make sure that they are. And it's interesting because I was reflecting some years ago, I used to chair the, I can't remember what the proper name was now, but it was basically the workforce function for the whole of Lancashire and South Cumbria. Mm -hmm. It was set up within HEE um, infrastructure, but... We had representatives from the acute sector, from the universities, et cetera, on those groups. And um, we had to work really hard to make sure that those people cascaded information and messages backwards and forwards and brought their wider constituents perspectives into those meetings not just sitting there talking about their trust and their views and i think we're just in that similar sort of space of people understanding how that needs to work and putting in some infrastructure to make sure that it's easy because Mm -hmm. be perfectly frank if you're a director of procurement or you're a director of finance and you're trying to do that on top of your day job you really don't have a huge amount of time to be then trying to cascade it out to a, a big constituency across a whole region so how do we help that happen so that i think it's one of those simple things but if you get it right it makes a massive difference but if you get it wrong it just leaves everybody really frustrated
0: uh, and in general the hsa conference um how did you uh, find your time there and the things that are going out of it, there was obviously there's a lot of discussion Our oh, CEO Keith Rowley did an, did an interview during the conference with SJ as well, where he was talking about, you know, the need to, to look at value over price yeah. or, and yeah. that kind of thing. What are your views on that? As a So I,
1: I think it's absolutely essential. Price, of course, is still important. You know, mm. it's taxpayers money. We have to be careful with every month, every pound that we spend. Um, and I hate waste so let's not pay more than we need to for something but let's not be penny wise and pound foolish you know there's so it, there's so much more to healthcare than the price of a particular individual item so you know and, you know I would understand this particularly because you know I've worked right across all sectors so I've worked in acute so I've worked in big tertiary centres, but you know i've also had responsibility for community mental health primary care services you have to look across the kind of whole life cycle of not just a product but a whole treatment pathway to understand where can you add value where can you drive efficiency and where can you improve outcomes i mean another big passion of mine so i've done work previously on a pro bono basis for a charity that the late duke of westminster set up to establish um, a defence re- a new defence rehabilitation facility but also to create an nhs one because actually in the nhs we're not very good at rehabilitation generally but if you can rehab people effectively and get them back into employment that's you know a better outcome for them. It's a better outcome economically for the you know for the country. They're not on benefits. They're adding value back into society. So you know there's something even bigger than than what we do within supply chain about how we understand what is really value added activity or products that really make a difference to people and and the country. But if we chase every threatening bit, shows my age now, but you know we won't get those kind of breakthrough results
0: um what about category towers some that comes up what's your view in category towers the future that kind of thing around category so towers?
1: i think you know we're in the process of you know a market engagement exercise mm-hmm. we've got some ideas about our future target operating model there's a lot of you know work to be done we are going to continue to need expertise in sourcing and uh, and so on I think it's too early to say exactly how that's all going to pan out. I think what we have heard, though, is the NHS and industry actually find our current structure overcomplicated, siloed, doesn't work as well as it could. So it's about so what what could it and should it look like for the future? So, you know, nothing, nothing's decided yet, but lots of people with lots of ideas of what might come through.
0: Before we move on to the last bit of the podcast, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Andrew when I spoke to him, which would, what would be your overriding message to procurement professionals in the NHS? our members
1: first of all you know I think you do a fantastic job and the country should be eternally grateful for everything that you've done over the last couple of years I think I well I hope that you feel your contribution is more recognized so one of the observations I mean I know Sir Jim Mackey would say if he was being interviewed, but I've heard and I've heard him say it, but I think I would have reflected the same is that, you know, a lot of chief exec, you know, if you mentioned procurement, it would just be, oh, just send it to send it to my director of finance. He'll sort it. Or or they might remember they've got a director of procurement. It's a bit like in the early days when it was like, oh, is this something to do with IT? Well, I'll send it to my IT director. Then rather than thinking strategically, how important is digital and technology to my business? I think they're just beginning to think, oh, maybe procurement is a strategic issue. Oh, maybe there is a wider contribution here. Uh, Maybe we should be a bit more interested in, in what we're buying, who we're buying it from, how we're buying it, how we use stuff, what that means for clinical practice, safety, et cetera. So... It's early days. But one thing that chief execs of NHS trusts and CCGs and wherever are really good at is spotting when the language is changing and starting to get on board with things that have started to become important. You you don't get to be a chief exec without spotting those things. So hopefully the moment is coming now where they'll suddenly go, oh, maybe I should go and talk to that guy or girl that we've got in there. Tucked away in the basement because they might have something worth listening to.
0: Okay, well that's a positive message to to round <laughs> up this this bit of the take a bit another bit that I laughingly refer to as the the hard bit. uh It's des- it's the desert island supplies bit, and basically this is where we try and scratch under the surface of your <laughs> heather. I'm going to find out what makes you tick a little bit, I suppose yep. what makes you what you relax to when you're when you're not, you know, uh, up to your eyeballs in healthcare-related issues. You're going off to the desert island, and you're able to take one luxury item. You're able to take one album from an artist, and you're able to take one film with you. What are they going to be? Luxury item first of all.
1: Well, I think. i mean most people probably wouldn't regard it as a luxury item but i think probably it would be my dog okay my my i have two spaniels so it would (laughs) be really hard to choose between the two but i I think i know which one it would be it would be little coco who um (laughs) is so you're uh,
0: leaving one dog you're leaving one dog behind
1: i, like, I I'm like no. the rules. I I like
0: that. I like the yeah. fact that you're yeah. keeping <laughs> to the rules. I do. I, I, I very much appreciate that. Some haven't in the past, but it's I'm nice. I'm sure.
1: I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, so why would I take her? So, she's fantastic company. I mean, she's she's the craziest thing in the morning before she's been mm. walked, but then after, she's the sweetest, cuddliest. Because you know. They, they say, you know, you don't own a spaniel, you wear a spaniel. Um, <laughs> and um, the other thing is, she, uh, re- she gives you discipline. So the option of just um, kicking around and not mm-hmm. doing anything all day isn't there, because she needs looking after. So okay. she would bring structure to my day, she'd bring joy to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and although she's quite small, I think if there was anything very fierce trying to attack okay. me, she'd... She'd make a lot of noise even if she couldn't bite it.
0: She'd have a go. She'd have a go. <laughs> well, she so, would. Um, so before before we move in, I've got to ask, what's wrong with the other dog?
1: <laughs> Nothing. In fact, that feels terrible,
0: but <laughs> I'm joking. No, I'm sure, no, I'm sure no, they're wonderful.
1: They are good. But she is just a little bit more independent. You know, uh, she, okay. I, yeah. yeah, I'm all right. You you know, yeah. I you look after yourself.
0: Okay, so Coco, was it Coco, the one you're taking? Yeah, yeah so Coco's, a, it's going to give you a little bit more companionship. Yes. On that yeah. island, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, well understood. <laughs> what about the music? What music? What uh, well, you
1: see, this is really hard because <clears throat> I like, I like virtually every genre of music except yes. traditional jazz, which I can't stand, and lazy, formulaic stuff, mm-hmm. but but kind of everything in between. And I love a kind of beautiful female voice, but I also like quite depressive kind of <laughs> gro- croaky, you know, Leonard Cohen type stuff yeah. as well. But yeah. but I've had to come down to probably the, the album that has stayed with me through more of my life than anything else, and that would be Lou Reed's Transformer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, uh, Lou Reed was the first um live band, uh, live artist I ever went to see at a concert at the mm-hmm. Manchester Free Trade Hall. So, again, I'm really dating myself now. But
0: <laughs> was uh, that Velvet he, Underground or was it Lou? Reed no, and, uh, no,
1: he was, he was, uh, uh he wasn't in the Velvet Underground at that time. Yeah. It was his, uh, for the aficionados. It was his white, light white heat tour.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But Transformer came out shortly after that, and it's really, well, it's I think it's just iconic. And of course it has perfect day on it. Mm-hmm. And um
0: yep. I don't
1: I don't know that being on a desert island would be perfect <laughs> by any means. <laughs> Depends, but, doesn't but, it?
0: Yeah. Coco's there. So. I know, I know. Yeah, Might be all right. so,
1: yeah, and I love the beach and I love the sea, so that's all good. Um, but yeah, so yeah, perfect. So Transformer, blue read.
0: And what film would you and Coco and Lou Reed be sitting down to uh, Mm. to enjoy on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, tricky. Because, you see, the only films that I ever go to the cinema to watch Mm -hmm. are Bond films. Because... Good choice. Yeah, because they're not a big... I'm not a big film buff, mm-hmm. but they, you know, if you're going to watch them, I just think they need mm-hmm. to be on a big screen.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And the problem is, I'm not going to have a big screen, am I? I'm going to have a little iPad. Not really.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you blew your luxury item there. You could have had a big, you, you could have <laughs> taken a big, like, one of that a big fold-out <laughs> screen, couldn't you? But yeah. you chose Coco instead.
1: Mind yeah. you, you see, now I'll just tell you another little story here. So my father was um, a radar whiz in the second world war and he was posted in the cocos, cocos islands not the cocoa islands the track, islands tracking the japanese and he managed to set up a film uh, like a cinema for the men he was the officer there and he managed to do that with a big sheet and a, an old cine camera so maybe maybe i can
0: yeah, maybe you can yeah you might it might be one of those sort of you know those things that have passed down the line.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'll let I you take. It.
0: Do you know what, I'm so touched about that story, I'm going to let you take that with you. If you can Thank dig you. it up, I'm going to <laughs> let you take your dad's makeshift World War II screen. Great. <laughs> Thank you. And well, what are you going to watch in it?
1: I think I would, because I probably need cheering up quite a bit, um, if, if we're there for a long time. <laughs> There's probably only a couple of films that I've watched a lot through my years. And one's the Rocky Horror Picture Show,
0: Right. And the other one's
1: the Blues Brothers. So okay. both, got, both got great music, both yep. need to, to get up and dance. So one of those would be great.
0: Okay, I'll let you take, I'll let you take like a double bill. I'm Thanks. sure there's a maybe there's a weird sort of DVD, Blu ray double bill out there of those, <laughs> those two films. But it sounds like a, that's very well thought through answers. That's excellent. <laughs> Heather, thank you very much for finding the time to do this, to sit down and have this chat. It's been very good. So thank you Very for welcome.
1: that. You're thank most you. welcome.
0: And best of luck in the interim chair role and what you're trying to do with um, Andrew and the supply chain going forward.
1: Thank you. Well, I think if we get as much help um, from the whole system as well, it's it's you know we've got a part to play, but we, we'll only do it together. So mm-hmm. hopefully um, we can we can really make a difference. That'd be fantastic.
0: Excellent. Great. Okay, that's it for this episode of SupplyCast. I hope you can join me next week. Bye.